This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, Jonathan Friedland here. Politics Weekly America is on a short break, gearing up for a busy election year, which will kick off next week. Today, though, I wanted to revisit one of my favourite conversations of 2023. Back in August, to mark 60 years since the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, I spoke to the civil rights leader, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Reverend Sharpton's insights into how American society has moved since then were truly fascinating, and I do hope you enjoy it. This month marks the 60th anniversary of a critical moment in the history of the United States, when a quarter of a million people from the civil rights movement marched to the Lincoln Memorial and heard arguably one of the most famous speeches ever given. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The I Have a Dream speech delivered by the civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. is invoked in America's political conversation to this day and often, though not always, as Reverend King might have wanted. At the end of August, six decades on, thousands will once again march on Washington. One of the architects of the event is the Reverend Al Sharpton, famed American Baptist minister, civil rights activist, and now talk show host. I spoke to him about why he still feels the need to march and how far he thinks America has come since that summer of 1963. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Once derided for a style then deemed outlandish and rabble-rousing, Reverend Sharpton has gone from a preacher in a tracksuit protesting on the streets of New York to a finely tailored political elder who increasingly finds himself at America's top table. He and I talked about that journey, but first I asked Al Sharpton to take us back to that day on the 28th of August 1963 and how the March on Washington came about. If people read Dr. King's speech, and not just the climax, the end of the speech, I have a dream. He says, Mr. Lincoln, we come a hundred years later. The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. hundred years early, Abraham Lincoln, who was president, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, promising the freedom of the slaves if at the end of the uh, Civil War, 
and that they would become free and equal citizens. He said, we come a hundred years later to say that you promised. Washington didn't promise us anything, so we didn't go to the Washington Monument. You promised, Mr. Lincoln. That's why they came to Lincoln Memorial with that great statue of Lincoln sitting in a chair and addressed the unfulfilled promises of America that was made by Abe Lincoln, by the people that fought and died in the Civil War to save the Union and still was not equal in the United States. And that's why we're going back this year to the same place. In a way, it was unfinished business then, and it remains unfinished business. You were just a child at the time, very, very young man. Do you have memories of it at all from that period? Absolutely. I was about uh, seven or eight years old. And I remember because my father went. And my mother and father, who later broke up, but they, we, they were both still living together. And I remember how committed they were because they knew segregation. I never lived under segregation. And I remember my father coming back from that march. He went with our church, showing me the newspapers. And my mother had me sit and watch the TV news. Then it was black and white televisions. And how they were so excited. Despite all the excitement and the pride with which he looks back on that day, Al Sharpton now recognises that it wasn't a perfect show of solidarity for everyone. They did not allow women to speak. There was certainly misogyny at that time, even in the civil rights movement, and homophobia. They had isolated the lead organiser of the march, Bayard Rustin, who I got to know later, obviously when I got older and later in life. So even in the movement, it was not as diverse and unified as it is now. Uh, but they it made a strong statement, and it began a momentum that led to the Civil Rights Act, Federal Civil Rights Act, the very next year, 64, which made it against federal law to segregate, and, and it broke the back of Jim Crow. You said um, a moment ago that the speech, the it's become an absolutely landmark moment in American history, the speech Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered, that people pay attention to the climax of the speech, but not the body of the speech. And in fact, that's true of a whole lot of writings of Martin Luther King's, including about the Vietnam War and class and economic issues. Just on that climax of the speech, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day... Even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. Do you think mainstream America, as it were, whether it's the media or politicians, do you think they get that right 60 years on? No, I think that they like the poetry and the cadence of the speech, and not the content. And the reason why, you know, they often quote it, but then they do not want to address the issues. One of the things that Dr. King said in that speech is that America has given Blacks a check that has bounced in the bank of justice. So we've come to cash this check 
a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. And today, as, as we prepare to march, the economic gap between blacks and whites in the United States is the same as it was in 63. We have more freedom, but we have the same index level of equality, which is why, yes, we made progress. Yes, we can fly first class to the march this year and stay at five-star hotel. But do we get the same job opportunities? Do we get on the boards? Do we get the contracts? We are still not economically equal. And that has uh, just received a tremendous blow with the uh, Supreme Court killing affirmative action because many of our professionals were able to get in institutions they were blocked from, not because of their grades, but because of legacy and other kinds of uh, considerations that give whites an upper hand. What I had in mind was exactly that, actually, was the phrase that was used by Dr. King in that speech, and it's often replayed, which is, the dream is that there will come a day when... My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And that phrase, content of their character, has in some ways been adopted by the right as a weapon against anti-racism measures like affirmative action. And therefore, that's why I was wondering if you feel that the legacy of Dr. King and indeed of the March on Washington has in a way been either, if you're being gentle, misused, but maybe even abused. I think that it has been a distortion of what he said and is intentionally abused. Because to say that when they use the phrase judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin, it was in the context of saying we should not be held back because we are black, just like our parents should not have been enslaved or segregated because they're black. We should be dealt with on content, but you cannot deal with the content of our character without dealing with the social structures that made us not have the same advantages that we inherited. So therefore, to get to where we are judged by the content of our character, we must first get to an equal playing field, which we do not have. And what the conservatives won't deal with is 267 years of chattel slavery, 100 years of segregation, and they say, okay, now let's start equal. In my life, my mother and father dropped out of school to go pick cotton because of segregation. Which means when I went to school and was able to go on to college because of the civil rights movement, my mother couldn't help me with algebra. She couldn't help me with geometry. She couldn't help me with my homework because she wasn't allowed to learn that. So that we're not starting at an equal place. And I think that that's what Dr. King was trying to push us to a beloved community where we can correct the wrong to make equal what was made unequal. This was not a Southern custom that we couldn't go to certain schools or that we couldn't eat in certain restaurants. It was the law. Rosa Parks, when she sat in the front of that bus, was arrested 
She wasn't sent to a, a therapist to see if something was wrong with her head. It was against the law. So by law, we were unequal. So the law has to correct what the law did and enforced. Now, over your shoulder there is a poster for the National Action Network, and that group, along with others, is organising a new march to mark the anniversary coming up on the 26th of August. The network says that it's not a commemoration, it's a continuation. So for people who might think, well, look, Reverend Al, we heard about those laws that held people back 60 years ago. Those laws were changed. What is the purpose of this march 60 years on? We are still unequal in terms of the economic conditions. We've seen a rise in hate crimes against Blacks, against Jews, against LGBTQ, against those that are of Latino origins. We've seen gun violence, unprecedented. We're down to an average, I was reading this morning, of two mass killings a day, a day this year. And we still see uh, voting rights laws being put in various states that erodes people's right to vote. So those are the four areas to have a diverse march to say we must now come forward and deal with the legal challenges today. Why in terms of gun laws? Why don't we have a banning of uh, military-style weapons and at least background checks? Why has the Supreme Court stopped affirmative action? So in many ways, we're protecting what was achieved in the 60s and challenging what's going on today by this Congress and this Supreme Court. They just uh, passed in the Supreme Court where a lady can say, well, I don't have to put LGBTQ or same-sex stuff on my business social media because I don't believe in it. Uh, But what the court said today is that businesses in some cases can refuse to serve certain customers if doing so would force them to say something they don't want to say, like a business who designs websites. All of this is why we march, because there is a absolute, clear, concrete threat uh, to try and bring us back to pre-1963. We've moved from the 60s to the now, and I want to go back to the period in between, which is really when you came to national prominence as a civil rights leader, and talk about you a, a little bit, because you really exploded onto the scene in the 1980s. We did not have our children to be target practice for some white mobs that can't behave themselves. Never again will we come and weep. We will organize. We will go to the precinct. We will go to Santucci. We will go wherever we got to go until you leave our children alone. There's a newish film called Loudmouth about that period. And in a way, the title is very telling because that is how you were seen as this kind of brash, loud figure. You had this very uh, sort of uh, iconic look of wearing the track suits and you had sort of James Brown style hair. Looking at the film now, uh, it did strike me that actually, yeah, people at the time were calling you a self-publicist and saying that you know it was about getting on TV all the time and, and just getting yourself out there. I think even Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's widow, admonished you for 
laying it on too thick rhetorically. I watched the film and thought, okay, all of that actually had a strategy behind it. There was a calculation in your mind, which was in order to get these issues out there, you were going to do what it took to get, you know, on TV, in front of cameras. And you knew that actually talking the way you did, the look, all of it was part of getting attention to the issues you were raising. That's how it looks to me now. But you tell me if, if I'm overreading that or if it was something different going on. No, I, I think you are right on target. Uh, what most people forget is that prior to my generation, most of the civil rights leaders slash clergymen came out of the South. I came out of the North. And in particular, I was born and raised in New York. So in the South, Dr. King, Abernathy, Jesse Jackson, who late, you know, was one of my mentors, uh, who was a little younger than King and I was 13 years younger than Jesse, they all came out of the South. So you could send out a press release in Atlanta, where Jesse was from Greenville, call a meeting and local press, it becomes an issue. I'm in New York where you've got Broadway, Madison Square Garden, the Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, city that never slept. So you had to do things to get attention on issues. When the issues weren't there, it was no one was paying attention. So yes, we had to march in neighborhoods that didn't allow us. People that watched this film that you referred to never understood that there were certain neighborhoods in New York City, I'm not talking about Alabama, that if a black went, they'd be killed. And it was not talked about. When people in the 80s came to me and said, this young man got killed in Howard Beach because he was black, and they said they didn't allow the N-word in the neighborhood. How do we get this out there? I said, well, the only way we're going to do it is we all need to go and march out there. And we went, and people came by the hundreds calling us the N-word, get out the neighborhood. And I, becoming one that came out of studying the King movement, because like I said, I grew up in the church. My mother brought me into uh, the preachers that were involved when I was 12 years old. I became the youth director in New York when I was 13. I just transferred that drama to New York. And I knew the drama would get the attention. Except, though, you didn't present yourself in the sort of, I'm just thinking very superficially here, the way those civil rights leaders did, which right. is they looked like churchmen. They were, you know, suited and booted. You came on with the tracksuit, the James Brown look. And I wonder if you were deliberately thinking, that's what I need to do to get on TV and on the front of the New York Post. No, what, what you must understand is that I was younger than all of them. My contemporaries were Spike Lee. We grew up in Brooklyn around this, uh, uh, like two or three years younger than me. Russell Simmons, who started, uh, was one of the pioneers of rap. That's how we dressed. Uh, we wore track suits. So just like they were rebelling against the more suited down actors and musicians, I was rebelling against the suited down preachers. If you look at Spike Lee, Spike Lee didn't dress and behave like Sidney Poitier. That was the generation ahead of us. So you have to put my age in context. Once we started and they started mocking me being in a, a tracksuit and he doesn't dress like Dr. King, there's people around me says, oh, this is bad. I said, no, this is good. Let their mockery bring more attention to the issue. 
Because if we can survive long enough, people will say, but why is he marching? Forget about the tracksuit. The other thing was very practical, John. Many of our marches ended up with us sitting in somewhere and going to jail. I wasn't going to wear my good suits to jail. You can sleep in a tracksuit in a cell and just wash it out in the morning. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's good yeah. logic. The, and what about those criticisms? I'm thinking of Coretta Scott King. And, and look, there were plenty of people ready uh, to accuse you of being, you know, I've said brash or a self-publicist and so on. Did you, I mean, you didn't mind getting it from, you know, the New York tabloids, I'm sure. But did you mind getting that from, as it were, your own side? I think I did mind. But Coretta Scott King was different. This was the widow of Dr. King who I absolutely idolized. Too young to know him, but she, because of my relation with her son, took a very motherly approach to talk to me. So I'm looking, listening to her. And she didn't criticize, she advised. She said, Al, let me ask you something. You do understand the words have power and that you are trying to get a message out there. You have a name now. The question is, do you want your message to get in the way of what you're trying to do? To where, where you being a certain character got your attention, but once you got the attention, are you going to use it for what you're marching for or does it just replay the attention? Which made me begin to analyze, is your ego bigger than the agenda? And that's what made me start being more cautious of what we do, because now we're expanding and you got people from other communities joining us and you can't use the street talk and just play into the crowd. The other person that influenced me was James Brown. James Brown was like a father to me. His son had joined uh, my youth group uh, and both of us were 18 years old. His son got killed in a car accident, so James Brown kind of helped my youth group and became the father figure because my father left when I was 10. And I never get, we went to Las Vegas. First time I ever gone to Las Vegas. I might've been 19 years old. And when we were going in through the lobby of Caesar's Palace, James Brown said to me, Reverend, you see that? I said, yeah. He said, what's that? I said, it looks like a lounge, a bar lounge. He said, that's right. He says, and you see that lady up on the, uh, the little portable stage? As a year. He said, do you hear her? I said, no. He said, she's singing and she's dressed in a real risque way because she has to try to get those in the lounge to pay attention to her. He said, tomorrow night, I play the big showroom and we are going to be more refined, rehearsed. The band's got to do sound check and rehearse. He said, son, when you get to the big stage, don't do a lounge act because you go through the lounge to get to the big stage. And that's what Coretta Scott King was telling me that James Brown broke down for. Oh, that's, so that's fantastic. So those two mentors actually giving very similar advice in the end. And these are two iconic figures. Iconic You're not talking figures. about a lady at the church or a guy that I went to school. You're talking about James Brown, who was then arguably the largest black entertainer in the world. And, and Coretta Scott King, who I'm glad a guy from a broken home in Brooklyn that they even give me advice, so you know I'm going to listen to them. And do you, you said that he became a kind of surrogate father for you. Do you think you became a kind of surrogate son for him? Yeah, I do. His son that got killed that joined my group was his oldest son. He had other sons. He'd been married, ended up uh, married for a time. But I wanted to learn from him. 
I would ride around with him for hours anytime he let me. I would soak in there all that he would say. And he, when he wasn't performing, which was rare, he was home riding around in the backwoods of South Carolina, one of his 30 cars, and we would ride. And I said, well, tell me about this, Mr. Brown, and tell me about that. So in many ways, I became a son figure, and he helped my group. 1980, when I started uh, getting well-known nationally, he took me on Tom Snyder's show with, with Muhammad Ali. When I was 19, he took me on Soul Train. You don't do this for somebody that you don't have some affection for. Yeah, and you called him Mr. Brown, though. You didn't call him James. He did not allow people to use anything but surnames. He never called me uh, Alfred Sharpton. He called me Reverend. One night, though, I'll tell you something that I don't talk about too often in public. One night he was on the road somewhere. He sent for me. We were in Florida. He said, uh, you want to spend a weekend in Florida? I'm doing a show at Newport Beach Hotel. I remember. Did his show. We're back at the hotel like midnight. I go to the room he had for me. He calls me and he tells me, come back to the suite. I went back to the suite. I didn't know what was wrong. He said, what's your name? I said, what's my name? I'm like, what's wrong with him? He said, what's your name? I said, Alfred Sharpton. He says, too long. From now on, your name is Al Sharpton. You don't need four syllables, just three will do. And that's how I became Al Sharpton. And, you know, if you meet people who school me, they call me Alfred. And people always say to me, when did you become Al? If James Brown tells you to change your name and you're 19, 20 years old, you change your name. Despite taking the advice of his mentors, Reverend Al Sharpton was still hated by many. And in 1991, that hatred led to one of the most frightening moments of the preacher's life. 1991, we were having a march in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn. Uh, they had killed a teenager there, a black young teenager, for being in the neighborhood. And I said, learn from Howard Beach, we got a march in the neighborhood and everybody understand here's another racial part of the city. We started the march that Saturday, January 21st, 1991. A young white guy ran out the crowd, stuck a knife in my chest. They rushed me to the hospital. And as I laid there on that gurney, didn't know whether the uh, wound was serious or not, I came to terms with, if I didn't make it or if I was going to be permanently damaged, I was not going to regret it. You never know how sincere you are till you face the end or what you think could be the end and know how you feel. And I was determined if I live, I'm going to keep marching and keep doing what I do. And I've not stopped one day since then. Somebody told me once, it's easy to under uh, other circumstances die for a cause. It's harder to live for one. I've been blessed for 30 some years to be able to live beyond what could have been. If it had been an inch over, he might have killed me. Let's just talk about the issue that you focus on, because you've mentioned in the 60s and, and right through civil rights, there's a whole range of things, economic inequality, uh, discrimination in employment. The issue that really made your name, I think, in the 80s was particularly about police brutality and bias. Tell me why that was the one that you sort of zeroed in on, particularly in those years in, in New York when you were making your way. I think that because many of the more celebrated civil rights groups and leaders didn't understand how thorough this issue was. 
they were dealing with issues that were more acceptable and more, uh, what I would say, uh, of a higher standard of understanding. I lived in the community. I lived seeing people harassed by police. And I was saying that I don't care if we open up educational institutions, if we open up business opportunities. If you can't walk down the street without being afraid of the cops and the robbers, there's something wrong about it. I did it because I believed in it. And I did it because I lived it and saw it become what later became very popular. And I remained in the front lines of uh, No Justice, No Peace movement and then Black Lives Matter. That became the clarion call in the 21st century. We were doing since the 80s when everybody else was saying, let Sharpton do that. That's, you know, that's ghetto stuff. It was real core civil rights. If you could not keep law enforcement to obey the law, then what else was all that we were fighting for? No, and you mentioned, um, obviously, Black Lives Matter. And in 2020, the murder of, uh, of George Floyd absolutely was in some ways just the sort of issue you'd been highlighting for decades. A historic ruling in the U.S. as former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin convicted on all charges in the death of George Floyd. That moment in 2020, in fact, that's in some ways the question. Was it a moment or was it the beginning of a movement? I think it was a moment that had all of the makings of a movement. That's why we are three years later still heading to Washington and impacting things. And let me tell you why. When I got the call from the family of George Floyd and I did the eulogies at his funeral, we had the big march that August in Washington, 200,000 people in the middle of a pandemic. You got to remember, we tried to get federal legislation like they did in 63. We came that close. We couldn't, we passed through the House of Representatives, couldn't get it through the upper chamber of the Senate. Now, today, Senate Democrats voted down a Republican effort to debate the GOP policing reform bill, effectively ending the Senate effort to rein in law enforcement. Same thing happened with the John Lewis voting bill. But when Joe Biden came in and defeated Donald Trump, he did give an executive order named after George Floyd. They did all he could with an executive order. It's going to be a central issue policing in this election. So even though it may take a year or two to get it, it is the same model. The movement has to continue. And like any movement, you're going to have some activists fall off. They're going to scandalize others. But we keep in focus. And I believe that we will have federal legislation around policing. And just on that, how do you explain with the in the two years after Joe Biden's election where Democrats held the House the Senate narrowly, and the White House, why it couldn't get that legislation passed? Because it, we did get it in the House. In the Senate, two Democrats who were in very right-wing states, Cinema and Joe Manchin, refused to vote for the bill. We could have got it through if they had stood and did the right thing. Yeah, and as I, you know, those two names, listeners to this podcast know about those two senators from Arizona and West Virginia and how often they hold um, things up. Um, what, what the, one thing I think will surprise some listeners, perhaps, is that one slogan that came out of the George Floyd killing and the protests afterwards was this slogan, defund the police. 
What may surprise people is that you, uh, despite all your long history in this issue, railing against police bias and brutality uh, when it comes and racism, are, are against that slogan. T- tell us why. I was saying that the idea of the the slogan fed into what narrative that they wanted to say we were anarchists, that we didn't want law and order. And we wanted law and order equally. It was not defund the police. It was to, in many ways, reform the policing. We had fought for years to get Blacks and Latinos in the police department. And the question becomes, if you take all police out, then who protects us in neighborhoods where you have all of these gun trafficking and all of these crimes because you haven't changed the economy. You must also remember this, Jonathan. Every issue I fought, including George Floyd, I was called in by the victims, the family. You know, people that wise shopped in there because the family asked me to come in and preach the funeral and the family asked me to lead the, uh, the demonstrations that they marched with me, whether it was George Floyd all the way back to the 80s. So the real question is, if the families are saying this is the aim, and the lawyers for the family saying it, then how does somebody else come in and say, no, 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 this is what we want to do? You're not the victims here. How do you speak for people that you didn't even speak to? One thing that comes through in your in the film about you, and also whenever you look back at the 80s, is how crude and overt the racism that you were fighting on the streets of New York and elsewhere was then. You know, you mentioned the N-word. People were not tiptoeing around that word they were using it even on the broadcast network news in a way that i think now the word would just not be on the local new york news the way it was then is your view that look it's not as crude it's not as overt but the racism is just as bad or is your view that it's not as crude it's not overt as overt, and it is not as bad in 2023 as it was when you were fighting those street battles in the 80s i think that there's still a lot of racism but I think that with the generation or two since then, that people have uh, from other communities become more sensitive and understand that what their fathers and maybe grandfathers and mothers did was wrong. I see more diversity in the rallies and the marches, but it does not mean there's not a large segment uh, that still feel that crude. And I think that Uh, Donald Trump brought a lot of that out. Uh, So I think that we're better than where we were, but we're not where we need to go. Let's just talk about the politics as we, in, in our closing minutes, of the current moment. You know, you weren't immediately warm towards Barack Obama. It took time for you to warm up to him as a first full candidate and then eventually... Uh, in office. It's his vice president who's now president. Um, what do you make of Joe Biden's record so far on race? There are some people who say it's actually better than Obama's record. Where do you stand on that? I've got to know Obama. He did not come out of the movement experience I did. But the more I talked to him, the more I felt he'd be fair. And there are different roles in our community. So I ended up supporting him before Iowa caucus. And you have to remember uh, people were shocked that I would support him when I lived in New York and he was running in the primaries against my home senator, who I knew, Hillary Clinton. And uh, I became 
a figure during his uh, eight years that he would often have come to the White House and I, and he had a good relationship. In those meetings, uh, the tabloids say I went to the White House a hundred times. I don't know how many, but it was numerous times. In those meetings, because Trayvon Martin happened under Obama, Eric Garner, Choco King, on and on and on, and we would get some uh, legislation through. In those meetings, Joe Biden was there. And I used to uh, fight with Biden in the 90s around the omnibus crime bill. The country divided over a controversial, far-fetching anti-crime bill brought to Congress by former President Bill Clinton. Critics blame the law for record-breaking incarceration rates and with further devastating poor communities. The crime bill, which said there was mandatory time for people with crack cocaine sales as opposed to loose cocaine, that disproportionately put blacks in jail, even though he was against crack. Joe Biden was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee that worked with President, then President Bill Clinton to get that through. We marched on it. So I first was a little lukewarm about Biden. In those meetings that we were asking for uh, in Stand Your Ground laws around the Trayvon Martin case and other cases around voting, Joe Biden was absolutely passionate that we were right, even with Obama. So by the time his vice presidency ended. He had spoken at my National Action Network conference twice. Uh, we kept in touch. When he decided to run, I said, this is a fair man. I've seen him in the back rooms when he, there's no cameras, and he would stand up for us. I think he has been able to get some things done that we didn't get under Obama because he's had more to work with. And I think the climate has changed. And I think the contrast, there's a big difference and run against a John McCain, who was a statesman, or even someone that is knowledgeable and civil, like Mitt Romney, and in Donald Trump, all you have to do is be decent, and you are more of a progressive than Donald Trump. Uh, last question to you, Reverend Al Sharpton. You cut a very different figure from the man you were in the 1980s. Quite literally true, in the sense you're much slimmer now. I want to hear what, what that's about and where that came, came from. But also, you know, you now have a seat at the table. You're on MSNBC with your own show. You're regular around the Morning Joe show, which is extremely popular on that cable network. You're no longer having to just, you know, grab 30-second sound bites on the local news in, in New York. How much does the Al Sharpton of 2023 have in common with the Al Sharpton who was there in the 80s and even the Al Sharpton age seven, eight years old who was aware of that march on Washington in August uh, 1963? I lost the weight because, uh, you know, people used to do cartoons and all didn't bother me. When my daughter, youngest daughter, Ashley, poked my belly one day and said, Dad, you're too fat. That hurt my feelings. So I started dieting. In 2001, I was sentenced to 90 days in jail for leading a protest against Navy bombings in Puerto Rico. So I went on a fast and lost weight. And I became more health conscious. Uh, so that's why I lost the weight. No surgery, nothing. I literally lost weight. I'm a vegetarian now. I work out every morning, seven days a week for 35 minutes. Very health conscious. But the difference is, yes, I'm thinner. Yes, I have a TV show. Yes, I do a syndicated radio show. Yes, I can meet the president and the governor of any state. But it's the same message. And it's the same commitment. And I think the difference is style and packaging, but not the content. 
Because what am I on Morning Joe or on my show talking about? The same issues that you and I discussed. What am I in the White House talking about? The same thing I talked about at George Floyd's funeral. So it's like I told you, I was influenced by the Godfather of Soul, James Brown. I may be in the big showroom, but I'm singing the same song. Reverend Al Sharpton, thanks so much for talking with me for Politics Weekly America. Thank you. I'll be back next Friday, January the 5th, with an all-new episode, so do make sure to come back to us for that. But for now, I just want to wish you all a happy new year. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.